Open your copy of the scriptures to the book of John, chapter 11. If you're just joining with us for the first time today, we've been preaching through the book of John. We took a little bit of a break for a few weeks, and you can see those sermons uh, on Facebook, or you can go back and hear those sermons online. But if you will, turn to John chapter 11. We've been in chapter 11 for a few weeks now, preaching through this encounter that Jesus has with Mary, with Martha, and with Lazarus. So I'll let you get there for just a second. And uh, by way of introduction, let me just say this. Sometimes we plan things, and they don't go according to our plans. You understand what I'm saying? Right? Of course you do. All of us plan things... And, and no matter how intentional we are, no matter how careful or cautious we are, no matter how thoughtful we are in our planning, sometimes it just doesn't pan out. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, my family um, and my mother-in-law, so there's, there's seven of us, we decided that we were going to go on a little hiking excursion. Now, you know that the state parks are closed, so we had to drive all the way to North Carolina about an hour and a half away so that we could go and hike. Now, we were just going off of word of mouth. And uh, my wife was the one that was uh, planning this. And she's like, let's just do this. Let's get out. Let's enjoy the day. And, uh, and that was our plan. So uh, sometime around noon, we headed for North Carolina. And we went to find this hiking trail. So let me share with you just a few things that happened. Despite our best efforts, despite my wife's best planning this is kind of what happened took us a while to find the trail in fact we found the wrong trail to begin with and I don't think what we actually found and thought was a trail was actually a trail at all I think it was more of a game trail so I guess a trail but not a human trail I called it a death march because it was straight down going towards a river and so we were trying to find that river trying to see it because rivers are pretty and sometimes you can go and skip rocks and do all those fun things but it became evident to me that this was not a trail that intended to take you, at least not safely, all the way to the, rivers, um, to, the, to the side of the river. And so we turned around about three quarters of the way down and hiked our way back up this mountain to get back in the van. And then we drove, uh, we drove for a little while longer. We passed a campsite that we were trying to get to because a friend told us about it, but it was occupied. And then we went on to try to find another campsite, which was not occupied except by water a giant pool of water and just try to keep a 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old out of a giant pool of water. And so that was kind of what we were looking at. So we went and found another trail. We ended up hiking it, which ended up being a great time. We found, uh, we found places where we could skip rocks, where we could do all of those things, and it really was a good time. We get back to the campsite, the, you know, the, 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 water, the water hole campsite, we get back there and we thought, okay, let's make the best of this. While we avoid the water, let's make a fire. Well, it had just rained, so it was virtually impossible to have a good fire going. All the sticks, all the wood that we piled was soaking wet. We did have a lighter knot, and if you don't know what that is, that's basically where it's called fat wood. That is wood, that is a, a pine stump that is taken from a tree that has fallen over uh, or a tree that has been uprooted. That's the pine root from a pine tree, and it burns really, really, really well. And it was the only thing that would burn. The problem is, when it burns, it emits a lot of dark smoke. So while we were able to get flames, we had to cook hot dogs and s'mores over this really black smoke with flames on the inside. So that was a lot of fun. 
And so that's what happened. We set one hammock up, didn't really have room to set another hammock up. You know, kids are burning hot dogs in the fire. They're burning s'mores beyond recognition because for some reason kids think that uh, a marshmallow should be pitch black and crusty before you can actually eat them. And so it was just one thing after another until finally we went home. Now, it was a good trip, and it was fun, and I have zero regrets, but the point is, we had these plans, and we planned for it to go a certain way, and it just really didn't. We kind of had to improvise and to just take everything in stride, and that's kind of how life is sometimes, which leads me to today's objective. So let me share that with you. I want us to see how the plans of men are only as effective as the purposes of God. Let me say that again. Here's the objective. I want to see or to show you how the plans of men are only as effective as the purposes of God. So our text today is John chapter 11. John chapter 11 verses 45 through 53. This is all that we'll cover. And this brings the story, for the most part, of Lazarus to a conclusion. And it's not really about Lazarus, but about the aftermath of what has already happened in the life of Lazarus. So let me set up the scene for you. We know that last week, or if you know John 11, you know that just before we get here, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. So Lazarus is alive. He was in the tomb. He was dead for four days. Remember, he goes to the tomb, and Mary and Martha come up, and Martha says, Jesus, are you sure you want to roll that stone away? He's been in the grave four days. He's probably going to stink because his body's decomposing. Jesus speaks to Lazarus by the word of his power, just like the word that calmed the storm, just like the word that created the cosmos. And he speaks to Lazarus, and he says, come forth. And what happens? The dead man becomes alive, and he walks out of the tomb, and he's fine. Later, we'll see that he's reclining at a table in Bethany at Mary and Martha's house. But that's for next week. So there's a little bit of the scene, a little bit of the setup, and then here's what transpires. Many of the Jews, after seeing Jesus perform this miracle, after seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So that's the scene. There's been quite a stirring that's taken place because of Jesus raising this man from the dead. And of course, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You tell me what your conversations have centered around for the last six to eight weeks. Probably the coronavirus, probably COVID-19, probably the death toll, probably those infected, probably unemployment related to COVID-19. You know, that, that, that's something major that's happening in our world. So in this context, when a man is given life, although he was dead, that's something to talk about. Now, people respond to, th- to this in one of two ways. Some of them believed in Jesus Christ. Now, now I, let me just say this. 
some of them believed in Jesus Christ legitimately. They put on the Lord Jesus Christ like Mary and like Martha had put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But some of them believed in him as a political Messiah, as one who would deliver them from Roman oppression. So you have those two schools of thought that were happening. And that's the two ways that maybe they believed. But here's the way that others responded to this. There were others that went to the Pharisees and said, this is what's going on. Now, I don't know if they were being tattletales. I don't know if they were angry with Christ. I don't know that. It just says that they went and they told the Pharisees. Maybe they went and said, hey, you need to believe too because this man's shaking things up. I don't know. The, 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 what we do know is that they went there and they told the chief priests and they told the Pharisees and it caused quite a stir to the point that they gathered this council together. They gathered the Sanhedrin together. And this is a big deal. Why? Because Jesus at that moment, more so than ever before, Jesus became a threat. Jesus, Jesus became a major threat to these religious leaders. That's what's happening in this text. That's why they call this council together. And this is not just any council. This is like the supreme court this is a Sanhedrin session. Let me just say a few things about that so you can kind of get the full scope of what's happening here. This was the highest meeting that they could have. The who's who of the religious elite would have been the ones in attendance. And, and research shows that maybe it was around 70 people, 70 members that would have been in attendance at one of these Sanhedrin sessions. The attendance or the membership uh, um, consists of Pharisees, Sadducees, members of high priestly families, and chief priests who were ex-high priests. So this is the who's who of the religious elite, of the religious leaders. And they're coming together for one purpose, and what's that? That's to raise the question, what are we going to do with this man? What are we going to do with this man? Because everybody continues to follow him. Everybody believes in him. So what are we going to do? If we don't do something Rome's going to come, and they're going to take our place, and they're going to take our nation. That's the purpose of their gathering. That's why they did this. So Jesus became a threat to them. And let me tell you what Jesus became a threat of. What, he, what was he a threat of? To the Pharisees and to the Sadducees, to others, Jesus was a threat to their authority. Jesus was a threat to their status. He was a threat to their following. He was a threat to their way of life. He was a threat to their identity. He was a threat to their nationality. If Jesus were truly the Messiah, it would change everything for them. That's why they called this meeting together. That's why this Sanhedrin session had to take place in their eyes. This was a big deal because it meant everything to them. It meant everything with regards to who they were and what they did and what they knew. Jesus posed a threat. For them, he absolutely posed a threat, and they got it. They saw this. And listen, Jesus always poses a threat to those who are darkened in their understanding. And let me explain what I mean by that. For, for, the, for the relationship with Jesus, there's two sides of that relationship. There's two dynamics to that relationship. There's the Christian that has this certain relationship dynamic to where we have a relationship with Jesus that has brought us into right fellowship and right standing with God. And there's those who are outside of Christ where their relationship dynamic is that they are in opposition. They are enemies of God because they have rejected God's Son, Christ. 
And so there's two relationship perspectives that take place when it comes to Jesus. So when I say that to those darkened in their understanding, those people automatically see Jesus as a threat, and he very much is a threat to them. Listen to this. For Christians on this side of the relationship with Christ, we see that we see the giving up of worldly things, of worldly possessions, of all of our idols. This is a good thing. That's our perspective. When Jesus says deny yourself, when Jesus says take up your cross, when Jesus says hate the world, when Jesus says don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, we see this as good. Jesus is not a threat to us. Those things are a threat to us. The worldly possessions, the, the boastful pride of life, the lust of the flesh, these things are a threat to who we are, to a threat to our, our abundance. They're a threat to our, our, our walk with Christ. They're a threat to our life. So when Jesus comes and says, be removed from those things, it's for our good. So our vantage point is considerably different but those on the other side of relationship with Jesus being darkened in their understanding they view things very very differently Jesus does become a threat to them you see this is obvious because we live in a world where chastity and purity and faithfulness are are mocked they are mocked while promiscuity and fornication and indulgence are praised so if Jesus comes and says, put away your promiscuity, put away your indulgence, put away your pride, put away your self-made man, put away your self-centeredness. If he says, be stripped away of all those things, those are the things that a lost world loves. So yes, Jesus is a threat to those who are darkened in their understanding. We live in a world where revenge against those who have wronged us is expensive if not in some cases demanded and forgiveness is seen as a sign of weakness there's two very different perspectives depending on which relationship dynamic you have either on this side the 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 abundant life the i've been justified in christ and made into right fellowship with god through the gospel side or the side that says, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I live in darkness, I love darkness, and I love the world. There's that side. So these are two very different places. For the religious elite, for those steeped in Judaism and works-based salvation, and for those that rejected Christ as the Messiah, specifically the Sadducees and the Pharisees here in this text, they saw him as a threat, and he absolutely was. And that church, that church, that is, that is the quintessential depravity of man seeing jesus as the one who came to devastate your life rather than to bring it abundance that is quintessential depravity of man that is lostness that is blindness and that is brokenness but the story continues so there's this council there's this sanhedrin session that takes place but then enters another key player to the story and his name is caiaphas Verse 49 says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was serving as the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation 
should perish. Now let me say a little bit about Caiaphas because it's important that you understand his role as it relates to the religious elite. So Caiaphas, the scripture said, was high priest during this time. The high priest served as sort of the president of the Sanhedrin. He was the highest of the high there. Roles of the high priest included uh, chief religious authority. He would control the temple treasury. He managed temple uh, rituals, or I'm sorry, managed the temple police. He performed religious, religious rituals, and he served as a liaison between the Roman authorities and the Jewish population. So that's the office and the role and responsibility that Caiaphas held. So Caiaphas enters into this context. He enters into this scenario. I don't know when. He was probably there for a while because he heard the conversation because this is how he responds to them. He says, you know nothing at all. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you than one, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas right here would become one of the key players in the death of Christ. He presents this plan. He says to these Pharisees, listen, you don't get it. You don't get it. You're spinning your wheels. You're racking your brain trying to figure out what are you going to do with this man? People keep believing him. We can't shut him up. And Caiaphas said, you got to kill him. You got to stop him. That's how you do it. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand. It's better that he die. It's better that he's gone so that the nation can remain. And what does he mean there? He means that it's better that Jesus would die so that those followers would then maybe come to their senses and things would go back to normal. And then the threat that was upon the religious elite would be neutralized. And that way they could have their cake and they could eat it too. What's, interest, what's interesting here is that Caiaphas so clearly wanted Jesus to die. But it wasn't long before this part of the text that the Pharisees picked up stones to kill Jesus. What has changed? The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, and now Caiaphas wants to kill Christ. But it's a very different scenario, and why? And here's the issue. When the Pharisees sought to kill Christ, they thought they were doing so because they believed him to break the Mosaic law by being a blasphemer. And they considered him a blasphemer because Jesus equated himself with God. Jesus made a very clear and powerful statement with regards to his own deity, and they got it. Their response proved to the reader, proved to you, and proved to me that Jesus did, in fact, equate himself with God. And so they picked up stones because they felt that they had the right by law to do so so theirs was a quest although skewed and perverted a quest for truth but when Caiaphas enters the scene his is a quest for survival you see it's very 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 different here there's a root motivation behind their plans basically if we don't kill Jesus and they keep believing and following him we will lose everything. Authority, our following, identity, all of it. 
Their concern is that the Romans would come in and say, we're going to take your place and we're going to take your nation. And that's weird to read that. What does that mean? When they say we're going to take their word, the Romans are going to come in and take their place. They mean the city of Jerusalem and its temple. And when they say the nation, the concern is that Rome would come in and put an end to their national existence. And this is a big deal for them. In other words, if we can just get rid of Jesus, everything can go back to normal. What does it say about a man when truth is no longer the matter of most importance? What does it say about a man when truth is no longer on the table for consideration, or it's no longer something that we're seeking after? What does it say about that man? What does it say about you and me if, we ever get to the point that truth isn't really what matters most, but rather our greatest concern is how we look or how we are affected by whatever thing comes to pass. I think Christians are guilty of this all the time. I'm guilty of this. I'm sure you're guilty of this. I heard a story from a very reliable source about a pastor who was writing his sermon, he was doing his studies, and then he came to a place in his sermon studies where he realized that the notes that he had had on a particular text were wrong. And through further study, he realized that I can't present it this way because it's wrong. But he liked so much the way that it flowed and the way that it sounded. And to actually erase that and put truth into his sermon would mean to change his trajectory altogether. But that pastor made a decision that he wanted to maintain that that flow. He wanted to maintain the trajectory and to be accepted and to sound good, and to be polished, rather than to have truth in place of what was error in his sermon. What do we think would happen if prosperity preachers would flip the script on the way they teach, and then they would take truth and appeal to their crowds with truth, rather than communicating whatever they can to ensure their financial kingdoms? What a change that would make. It's a dangerous thing when truth is sacrificed on the altar of personal gain. So Caiaphas coerced the situation. He manipulated his way into their hearing and gave them a plan. A plan that they would accept. A plan that they received and a plan that they would execute. And when I study this text, just this so far, as I was looking over this thing, I noticed that for me anyway, and someone else may see more, for me, there were three critical truths that began to emerge. And I want to share those three with you. Truth number one is this. The truth that signs and wonders are not meant to be the means of salvation. Only God's call through the gospel. Now, if you heard last week's sermon, you're probably saying that's that's strangely reminiscent of your last point in the last sermon. And it is, but it has appeared in both texts. And so I wanted to mention it again, because I don't think that it can be mentioned enough. Again, the truth, the first truth that emerges is the truth that signs and wonders are not meant to be the means of salvation, only God's call through the gospel. Listen, these religious leaders admitted that they saw the signs of Christ They saw the signs that he was performing. They saw the miraculous. They were not denying that. 
they brought this council together because of that. And that people were following. And so they, they admitted that these things were happening. I don't think it would be any different today. God could speak audibly. He could bring all deceased loved ones from the dead. And people still wouldn't believe. Rationalization uh, and, and theory and, 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 and hypothesis rules the day. It's just too much to think that a living God actually placed all things into subjection under His Son, Christ. And that He, through the word of His power, actually rules and reigns and brings everything to pass. It's, 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 it's mind-boggling. And they wouldn't accept it. The miracles were right there in front of them, but they didn't believe. Why? Because miracles aren't the means to salvation. If miracles were meant to be the means of salvation, they would have been saved. Why weren't these religious leaders convinced is the question. It's because at the fall of man, every man is locked in the prison of his own depravity. Every man is locked in the prison of his own depravity. And the key to that prison is not miracles. The key to that prison is the gospel. Only the grace of God through the gospel is strong enough to melt down the metal of man's unbelief. It's not signs. It's not wonders or wonders. It's the gospel. The second truth that emerges. The truth that many are the plans and the minds of men, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. And if you're saying this sounds a lot like a proverb, that's because it is. Proverbs 19.21 says that. It says many are the plans and the minds of men, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. At the beginning, I introduced this sermon with the story of us going camping on our little excursion, how we made these plans, but those plans didn't quite come to pass as we would have liked for them to. And so the same is here, but a little bit different. Caiaphas comes in. He meets with the Pharisees. He makes his proposal. He offers his pitch. And everybody's in agreement. Let's kill Jesus. We can't have him gaining all these followers. We cannot continue to allow him to do these things. Man had a plan. And man executed his plan to the best of his ability. And it would, and it would seem that his plan went off without a hit, without a hiccup. Without a problem. Although it was Caiaphas who instigated this plan that would eventually lead to the death of Christ, it was only successful because it was the predetermined plan of God that Jesus would die precisely in the way that Jesus died. If you have struggle, if you have a problem hearing that, I want you to listen to the prayers of the saints in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Listen to this. When they, were when they were released, the book, uh, Luke says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had to say to them. This is, this is giving an account of the crucifixion. This is, giving a, this is a recollection of Jesus being handed over. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. This, these are the saints. These are the people of God praying 
sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, whom God anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we have from Scripture that although the plan of Caiaphas and those in agreement was executed and seemed to go off without a hiccup, at the end of the day, it only did that. It was only successful because it was first, and most importantly, the predetermined plan of God. That's exactly what this text says. The account here in Acts is the coming to fruition of what was started here in this Sanhedrin session. The religious leaders concocted a plan that would at first glance seem to be successful, but only as it aligned itself with the eternal decree of God. This means that nothing that man sets his sights on can be accomplished without, without God first ordaining that it be accomplished. So any man's darkest agenda that's set against you or set against the church will not stand. Unless God has decreed that it would. It should come as no surprise to you that we look at the text like when it says that the, 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 the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Why? They cannot unless God decrees that they do because the gates of Hades answer to the decree and the sovereignty of God. The same that Caiaphas and the plans of man answer to the ultimate and definitive plans of God. I don't know about you, but for me, this gives deeper meaning and weight to the scripture that says, if God is for me, who can be against me? The only thing that can happen to me is that which God first ordains to happen. And if it does happen to me, if it's COVID-19 or if it's some horrific death or whatever, it's because God ordained that it be. And if God's involved, it's for my good and for his glory. There's a third truth and a final truth that emerges from this text. And it is this, the truth that God, through the means of man, would set into motion the events that led to the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Listen to what Caiaphas says in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you, listen, that one man should die for the people. That one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Well, how about that? The most horrific and tragic event in all human history was also the most glorious and God-honoring event 
in all human history. What Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin intended for evil, God intends for good. Notice in this text, verse 51, it says that he, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he did what? He prophesied. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What in the world is Caiaphas saying? Caiaphas was never heralded as some prophet, but in that moment, God uses this wicked man, God, just like he used Pharaoh to accomplish his purposes, just like he used Judas to accomplish his purposes. Here we have God speaking through a wicked man such as Caiaphas, who had set himself against God as an enemy trying to kill his son. And God speaks through him and says, he's going to substitute himself as an atonement for the nations and for all those who are scattered abroad. Something was at work here. A wicked man used as a prophet to announce the toning work of Christ. This is what God does. Caiaphas had his agenda. He had his plan. And his plan, meant for evil, actually came to pass as for good. Why is that? That is because, that is because many are the plans in the minds of men. But it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. Caiaphas wanted to put to death a political Messiah to save a political nation. Caiaphas is thinking in his head, political Messiah, political nation. Get rid of the political Messiah. They won't have someone to save them from Rome and all of these things. They'll turn back to the religious authorities and everything will be as it was. And all will be well. He wanted to remain a nation that Rome would have, that Rome would have otherwise stripped away. Many saw Jesus as a political Messiah, one who would deliver them from Roman oppression. Caiaphas was dead wrong, but at the same time, he was absolutely right. He was wrong in his thinking, but he was right in his words. Jesus would, in fact, die. And it is, in fact, better that one man would die so that a nation might be rescued. Caiaphas, unbeknownst to him, very clearly shares with us, because God is at work, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The substitutionary atonement of Christ is a key component to the redemptive, to the redemptive narrative. No substitution, no salvation. No atonement, no redemption. So what is the substitutionary atonement of Christ? I'll give it to you in a nutshell because I explained it last week. We are a broken, sinful people and broken, sinful people who have transgressed God and offended His holiness deserve God's justice. God's justice comes in the form of wrath. That wrath is dispensed in one or two ways. It is dispensed in the sinner in hell for all eternity or it is dispensed on Christ for a few hours on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Jesus went to the cross 
not because he earned death for himself, but because he paid a debt that we could not pay. Because he bore and appeased the wrath of God where we could not. Why do you think hell is for an eternity? Because that's the time frame it takes to fully appease the wrath of God consumed by mankind. But not Jesus. But not the God-man. Jesus stood in place of all who believe and suffered that wrath. Suffered pure hell for all who would follow him. He did it instead of us. We earned it, but he took our place. That's substitution. Do you know what the definition of absurdity is? Absurdity is something that is ridiculous or wildly unreasonable. It is an absurdity to think that the God-man Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, absolutely pure, perfect, and divine, who has been defined not just as loving, but love, not just as peaceful, but as peace himself, that he would go to the cross, that he would suffer shame, guilt, that he would be scourged, that he would be mocked, that he would be crucified, that he would suffer a humiliating death so that we may have right standing with God the Father. That's wildly unreasonable. But that's exactly what happened with Christ's substitutionary atonement. And that's exactly what Caiaphas, a wicked, self-interested, haughty, ungodly man, says when he says that it's better for one man to die than that a nation perish. Church, when your plans don't work out like you planned them to, take comfort maybe the Lord spared you from an outcome that your plans would have absolutely ensured and instead he set his plans in motion which are always for the good of his people and for his glory may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and give you grace let's pray Father, change us as we need it. Make us more like Jesus. Give us a capacity to worship you better, to love you better, and to better represent you to all those that we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen.